thought I was missing something for a minute. It is my turn to be up here, right? Okay. I just want to let you know that I can count. In Will's defense, I've never known a youth pastor to ever count well. Have you? It's a good thing he married well. Yes, sir. Can I get him into that? That's right. I don't know how in the world she married him, but she had a momentary lapse of sanity, I'm sure of that. <laughs> Have you ever regretted that? Oh, she went, anyway. <laughs> uh, I'm here to do marriage counseling for Will and for the rest of the staff, anyway. I decided today that I would try to look like somebody. Do you know who I'm trying to look like? I'm a much better looking version than he is, amen? No, they're not, amen in that, brother. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, it's good to be with you this morning. Take your Bible if you have them and open to Matthew chapter 6. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, what a joy it is to be here every, the last couple of Sundays we began a series on the Lord's Prayer or what many of us would like to redefine as the Disciples' Prayer. And so we're going to look at that again, just one sentence in that prayer this morning um, that we're going to study together. The title of our message is Advancing God's Agenda. I looked up the word agenda, and the word agenda is identified and described as a list or a line of things to be considered or done. A list or a line of things to be considered or done. Like, answer that telephone, please. <laughs> a list or a line of things to be considered or done. When we come into the presence of God, we often, I think, sometimes bring an agenda, a list of things that we want him to consider and a list of things that we want him to do for us, when the reality is it ought to be just exactly the opposite of that. We should come to him with an empty slate, with a blank list, with an empty page, and say, Lord, I want you to fill in the line. I want you to fill in the list of things that you want me to consider and things that you want done. And so that's why I entitled this Advancing God's Agenda because today we're going to look at the agenda that God has for us as we pray, that we are to pray for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done as it is in heaven. And what exactly does that mean? It means that you and I in our relationship with God are not in a democracy, but we are in a theocracy. God is the one and God alone is the one who reigns and rules on his throne, and he is the one that dictates and determines what we pray about and what we pray for and what is done. Not we, not you, not me, even not us. For we come to the Father and we say, Lord, I bring my list, I bring my line of things I want you to consider, and these are the things I want done. And God says, wait a minute, buddy, it's the opposite way. It's something different than that. I want you to come to me with a blank list, a blank slate, an empty page. I want to write down what I want to consider and what I want to do. And those are the things that you should pray for. So let's take the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer this morning. Would you stand in honor of God's inerrant, infallible, and holy word today? And we're going to read Matthew 6, verses 9 through verse 13. Now, this is the disciples' prayer, Lord's Prayer, that the Lord gave on the Sermon on the Mount, and these are the words of the Lord. Let's read together. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And everybody said? Let's pray together. God, thank you for the joy and the privilege and the opportunity we've had today to have been reminded today through our confession of faith, through the songs that we have sung, through the heart that we have laid before you. And our heart's desire is, is to come before you today and say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And God, I think sometimes we are so self-focused and so self-centered and so egotistical. I know I am sometimes that I have a list of things that I want you to consider and a list of things that I want you to do. Forgive us for praying that way and Lord, teach us today how we might pray in accordance to the way that your son Jesus Christ taught his disciples to pray. For we indeed are your disciples and we have a desire to follow in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to follow his instructions and to do what he has instructed us to do. Yes, Lord, help us, teach us, lead us, and guide us today. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought. Help us get through this in time. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. A couple of years ago when our two grandsons, Teo and Owen, were smaller, it was about two years ago, we lived in Colorado, um, they were playing with one of our children's most favorite toys was a Fisher-Price farm set. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's like a little barn, and it has a gate that opens up, and it goes, Wah! every time you open it, you know, and, uh, and then there's a little uh, gate up top of the, you know, where the hay's supposed to be thrown out. There's, a, fi there's, a, there's a, a chicken and a goat, and I think there's a horse and a cow, and Mr. Farmer Brown and his wife, and whatever. And so our kids played with it, so we kept it in hopes that our grandchildren would play with it, and every one of our grandchildren when we came to our house, I think, played with it, but Owen and Teo were playing with it, and... Uh, Theo began to play with it by himself. Owen went to do something else. And after a while, a, a two-year-old kind of, you know, got disinterested in the toy and went across the room to play with something else. And Owen then seized his opportunity and went over to play with it by himself because they have a hard time sharing. Didn't take long for Theo to get preoccupied with something else and distracted with what he was doing. And he looked up and he saw his older brother playing with the Fisher-Price farm set, and guess what he did? Mine! Mine! And yelled like that on and on and on, demanding that he drop the toy and let him have it. Most of us grow out of that. If you don't know who I'm talking about, it's probably you. The sad reality is, though, that often we're like that when we pray. Lord, my kingdom, my will, my list, my needs, my wants, my desires. I want to set the program. I want to set the agenda. I want to relay the purpose that I want you to fulfill. And as a result of that, we, I think, are actually in contradiction to the way that Jesus taught us to pray, if that's the only way we pray. For most of us, prayer is a 911 dial where we simply pick up the phone and dial 911 
and cry for help when we want something. And we have already seen in this text that prayer is a command in this text. Pray is intended by the Lord for his disciples to pray. When he commands us to pray, he says, pray then. And that word then is a conjunction that links the word prayer with like this, meaning that Jesus is fully intending that we pray. He knows that his disciples will pray. And so he says, when you pray, then pray like this. Pray according to this fashion. Pray this model prayer. Not necessarily pray this prayer, but pray this way. And we can pray the Lord's Prayer. We've already talked about and addressed that as long as there's hard intentionality and meaning and purpose in it. But he instructs us how to pray, and he gives us a model prayer. And it's not by accident when Jesus intentionally, as we talked about last week, selects the first sentence in this Lord's or disciples' prayer in which he is teaching us to pray where he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I mean, of all the things that he could have picked out, this is how you pray. He says, Our Father in heaven. In other words, Lift up the Lord, acknowledge him, recognize him as the Father who is in heaven, and when you do that, then reflect who he is and reverence him and hallow his name. That's not about me, it's not about you, it's not about us, it's about him. It starts off about him, not about us. And so as we enter into the holy of holies, in the very presence of the Lord God Almighty himself, we are to humble ourselves in a humble posture and recognize him for who he is and exalt him to that place and to hallow his name. Then the second sentence that he gives us is equally as important as the first. He says to us, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Interesting that he takes the focus off of us and continues to place it upon the Lord God Almighty. We're not to look at our reflection in a mirror as we talked about last week, but we're to see a reflection of him and to magnify and glorify him as our father, but also we are to pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. Now we cannot, as we pray, advance the agenda of God because we in of ourselves are impotent, we are powerless, we are incapable of advancing God's agenda without God. It's impossible to do that. And as a result of that, it's important that we understand that what we are relying upon when we pray is for God and God alone to work in us and to work through us so that he can advance his own agenda. And yet the beauty of that is, if you remember way back when I first started preaching here a couple of weeks ago or months ago, John 5 where we follow the example of Christ, we are stepping into what God is already doing and we are joining God in his activity in John 5 because that's what Christ did. And so we then are stepping into God's activity, joining God in what God is doing, and he is instructing us that when we come into his presence, as we hallow his name, we are then to pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's how we're to pray. So what does that mean? Well, let's look at the text real quick, if we can, beginning with the first couple of words of our sentence. We advance the kingdom of God when we elevate his reign, when we elevate his reign, or by elevating God's reign. Notice he starts out in the second sentence with the word your. That is a personal pronoun, but that personal pronoun is singular, meaning that the kingdom belongs to him. It doesn't belong to anyone else. 
It is his kingdom and his kingdom alone. No one owns nor can claim to own that kingdom other than his. It is his kingdom that we are praying for. It belongs to him. And even though we may call this church our church, it is not our church. It is his church. For we are a part of his kingdom. We are praying for your kingdom. What do you mean kingdom? Well, here it means the domain. It means the domain, the um, rule, or the dominion of God. We are to pray that the kingdom of God become reality. Mother, we are asking for God to be sovereign. Now, in the original language, there is a conjunction prior to the word kingdom, which is the word the, which means we are praying for the kingdom. It means his kingdom is the one and only kingdom. There are no other kingdoms. Not only does he not share his kingdom with anyone, but there is only one kingdom that is to be our priority, and that kingdom is his kingdom. Your, the kingdom, is to come. It is to become real. It is to be realized. It is to happen. And while God's kingdom is present with us, in us, and among us, it is not fully and completely consummated yet. It's not fully realized. And so we are to pray that his kingdom come, a kingdom that is in the process of being realized, a kingdom that is in the process of becoming reality. So I want to just quickly talk about the kingdom in a couple of passages, and I like to do this because I like to hear your Bibles move. I love to hear the pages. So let's look at Luke 1, 32. Luke 1, 32. Here is a passage in which we find the angel coming to Mary, she has been selected to be the mother of the Christ child, and he is instructing her that she is the privilege of being that designated appointee. And then he talks about the one that she is going to give birth to. In verse 32, he says, he, referencing to the child, to the Christ, will be great, and will be called the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, there will be no end. She's giving birth to a king who will have a kingdom that will have no end, a kingdom in which her son will reign and rule. He'll have dominion. He'll have domination. He'll have the authority. He'll be the one that will sit on the throne. Turn to Matthew 3, 2, and 1. Here we see John the Baptist in his message. He then is being proclaimed, or being, what's the word not proclaimed? He is the one that is being appointed to proclaim the coming kingdom. Notice in those days, John the Baptist, what he came preaching in the wilderness on, of Judea. What is his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. The Messiah has been born, and Christ is present. The kingdom is at hand. Notice then back in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, if you have time, we have Jesus now going about preaching and proclaiming much the same message as John the Baptist, recorded for us in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, notice what Christ is saying. Notice his message. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent and believe in the gospel. Christ himself is also proclaiming that the kingdom has arrived. It is at hand. It is present. And he is the king who is presently presenting himself as the king, which is one of the reasons why they crucified him. They rejected him as their king. We're not going to turn to John chapter 18, but if you know anything about his interview with Pilate, the interrogation that took place, he was presented as the king, and Pilate asked him, are you the king? And he's asking, are you saying that I am? And of course, Pilate's saying, no, I'm not saying that you are. And Jesus responds to Pilate's questioning by saying, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this world. So the angel proclaimed a kingdom for her coming baby that was to be born, the Messiah that we worship at Christmas and we worship with our lives, and the one that John the Baptist proclaimed, and the one that Jesus even proclaimed, that he said the kingdom of God is at hand. What kingdom is that? It is a spiritual kingdom that Christ came to set up. A spiritual kingdom. A kingdom in which is set up in the hearts and the lives of the men and women and boys and girls that place their faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. Get it? The Lord. I, can't, I don't think you can separate Savior and Lord. He's your Savior and your Lord. It, they're not two decisions. They're one and the same. You heard that in the baptism a while ago. Colossians 1.13, which is the most important of all the verses I want you to turn to, I want you to make note of this. If you would, Colossians 1.13. Notice what it says in this text. He has delivered us, he, Christ, from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So where is that kingdom? It's within you. The moment you place your faith and trust in Christ and made him your savior and Lord, it was at that moment that Christ enthroned himself on the throne room of your heart and he now is your king. He is your Lord. He is now to be the one who is to be dominant. He is, his domain is in your heart over your life, over every aspect about your life. In other words, he is the king. He is the sovereign over your life, over your marriage, over your children, your family, your business, your present, your past, and your future. He is to be the king. He is to be the Lord. He is the sovereign one over your life. He is the one that you bow to and recognize as sovereign, as your Lord. He is your Lord because his kingdom now is in you through the presence and the power and the person of the Holy Spirit where now he is enthroned in, in your heart and in your life and you who are saved are part of that kingdom. So how do we pray your kingdom come if it's not yet present, yet it is, I mean, it is present but not fully consummated, then how does that happen? Well, is he Lord in every aspect of your life right now? Every aspect of your life? Because I'm convinced if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Think about that. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. You can't enthrone him in your heart and life as your sovereign and then tuck him away in this little section of your heart and life and say, okay, God, you can have this part, but I'm going to keep this part. You can have this and this, but you can't have that. He's not sovereign. He's not king. He's not Lord. And so, therefore, our prayer is for his kingdom to come. It is a process. Talk to 
JT about that a while ago. He was talking about his daughters outside getting baptized. And I said, well, they're beginning the journey now of, of discipleship. What is the journey? It's a journey of each and every day waking up and say, Lord, help me today. Make you Lord of all, of every aspect of my life, everything that I think, everything that I feel, everything that I do, every motive that I have, every intention that I have, every desire that I have. I want you to be Lord of all. And as we pray, we come before God and we say, God, be Lord of my life. And in the areas of my life in which you are not Lord, reveal those to me. Because I want to make you Lord in every aspect of my life. And I don't know about you, but when I open the Bible every day and I pray in my quiet time, isn't it funny how God points out something in my life in which he is not Lord? That's why many avoid spending time in God's word because that's what God uses to bring conviction into our hearts to help reveal to us where God is not Lord of all of our lives. And then, if we're in ignorance, we don't have to do anything about it, and that's why most of us would rather stay in ignorance rather than come to a full realization of that knowledge because once we know that there's, there's a section over here that I have separated from God and he's not Lord, now I've got to do something about that. And when I don't do something about that, there's a conviction that comes with that, doesn't it? Until I settle the score with the Lord because the Holy Spirit's not going to let us forget about it. And so we pray, Lord, your kingdom come in me first. And when he then is sovereign, when God reigns and rules in your life as sovereign each and every day, his kingdom is in the process of becoming reality. I think this prayer is, first of all, directed toward us. Lord, may your kingdom come in me and through me as I yield to you the lordship, the sovereignty, the control of my life. I shouldn't say this when I'm saying it anyway. My wife's going to tell me I shouldn't say it anyway, but I'll say it anyway. She's already shaking her head. I love my truck. I have a great F-150. It's an incredible truck. It's my third truck. I don't like to drive anything but trucks. And my wife has never driven my truck until the last three weekends. Why? I drive my truck. I drive my truck. But in these trips coming back with all the things that have happened in our family, I've needed to take a little bit of uh, repose, so to speak. And so we talked about it, and I said, Babe, are you ready to drive my truck? She said, Really? <laughs> so I got this little bitty woman driving my big truck. And I'm taking a nap. Are you one of those people that likes to stay in the driver's seat all the time? Come on. If you're in the driver's seat of your prayer all the time, you're probably not praying right. Lord, I don't need to direct you, control you, determine the outcome of my prayers. I want you to be Lord in my life, and I want you to reveal the areas in my life in which you are not Lord, in which you are not sovereign, so that I can pray in accordance to that. So that's how we pray. Secondly, I think we not only elevate God's reign in our personal lives, where he reigns in us and through us, but by embracing God's rule. 
There's a a willingness on our part that once he reveals that we are not under his reign, that there is some aspect about his rulership in which we are being disobedient or contradictory to, that we then obey it. And he says, your will be done. Notice your is again a personal pronoun that is singular, meaning the only will, the only desire, the only thing that matters is God's will, not yours and not mine. Ever. 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 He doesn't say, Charles, is that okay with you? Never has he asked me that question. It is his will and his will alone should be our priority and only his will and no other will. It's not about what brings us delight. It's not about what brings us our desires or our pleasures or our plans or our purposes. It's about what brings his and only his and his alone is what matters. And he says, your will, and that word will is described as the word attitude or thought or intent or purpose or desire and sometimes even the word delight. Lord, what delights you? What do you desire? What do you will from me and from my life? Your will, notice, be done. We're asking for God's will to be done in us and through us. God, may your will be done. God is the one who determines the action that is needed to require his will to be done. We cannot make his will to be done in anyone else's life. We cannot make his will to be done in our lives. We can only yield to him and allow him then through our yieldedness for him to bring about the reality of his will in us and through us as we are obeying that. God works toward his will in us and through us. Philippians 1, 6. Anybody know what that says? He who began a good work in you will be what? Faithful to complete it. Who's going to complete the work that he began in you? You? Is that what it says? God completes the work in you. And yet, as we yield ourselves to him and to his control, as we elevate him to that rainful and rightful place that is his as our Lord. You are my sovereign, and I bow to you, and I honor you, and I follow you. Now show me now what your will is so that I can be in a compliance to your will. Let me give you a beautiful, perfect example of that in Luke 22, verse 39. Turn there if you would. Luke 22, 39. All right, you're beginning to disappoint me. I don't hear any pages. Just make some noise. Luke twenty two thirty nine. Who do we follow? Jesus. Here's the best example. Jesus is on his way advancing to the cross as quickly as he can. He knows what's about to happen in the next few days. He's known for, for a long, long time now, from the very beginning, where he is headed, and he is on his way quickly there. He's advancing toward the cross to the agony, through the crucifixion, through all the pain and suffering that will lead him up to the cross, and then the cross will be the final crescendo where he will finally lay down his life for those of us who will place our faith and trust in him. Verse 39, so he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. It was his custom. Anytime he was near Jerusalem, he went to the Mount of Olives to pray. And the disciples followed him. Why did they follow him? That's what disciples do. They follow him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, notice what he says, 
Pray then, you may not enter into temptation. Christ knows what's coming, and he encourages his disciples. He gives them an assignment, I want you to pray. Because temptation is coming, trials are coming, difficult times are ahead for you, you need to prepare through prayer for those moments when they come so you will be already ready for them, energized, empowered by the Lord to manage through those. So you need to pray. And he then withdraws from them about a stone's throw. How far can you throw? And knelt down and prayed. This posture is a humbling posture, but he prays. And this is not uncommon for Christ because we know throughout the Gospels that he prayed a great deal and spent a lot of time one-on-one with him and the Father. And any time there was any kind of major ministry or any decision or anything that needed to be done, he went to the Father and he prayed. Notice verse 42, saying. These are the words that he spoke. I can imagine there are times when we pray that we're... We're finding it hard to just come up with words. And I don't think sometimes when you're praying and you're in God's presence, you really have to say much. The God who knows your heart and hears your thoughts without you even speaking them is, is, is capable enough to hearing and knowing what you're feeling and what you're sensing. And I think sometimes just coming into God's presence and being quiet is a great thing. But he speaks. Notice what he says. Father, where have you heard that before? In the prayer, our Father. Why did Christ address him as Father? Because he knows that his Father is compassionate, his Father is loving, his Father is kind. He and the Father have an intimate love relationship, and the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And he knew that that God would show him exactly in John 5 what the Father was doing, and he would simply step into the activity of God. And so he says, Father, if you are willing, if you desire, if there's any possibility Remove this cup. That cup is symbolic of what is to come, the pain and the agony of the cross and all that led up to the cross. But this morning at about, I don't know, 6 o'clock this morning, I saw something I'd never seen before. You ever, ever done that? And I've studied the Bible for a long time. Notice, remove this cup from me. You can't remove something from someone unless they already possess it. Christ has already embraced the cross. He already has it in his possession. It's already in his hand. He is already willing to die. He is prepared for it. He's ready. He's received it. He's on the move. And, and, and I know he is praying You know this prayer, Lord, if it's your desire, listen, is there any other way? But he's not praying that then that he's he's not picked it up yet. It's already in his possession. He's already made the decision that this is where he's headed. So if it be your will, then remove it from me. But notice what he prays. Nevertheless, I love that word. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Should not, not that not be our prayer? Lord, not my will but your will be done. You see, sometimes I think when we pray, we think that God wants to release us and relieve us of pain and agony and hardship and and even death. We want God to, to remove that from us. But sometimes it's God's will for us to go through difficult times. Jesus encouraged his disciples to pray. 
Why? Because they were about to enter into temptation. You knew it was coming, so they needed to pray. That was not going to go away. The enemy was going to come and test them and tempt them and try them. They were going to be so scared they were going to lock themselves up in the upper room with their doors locked and the windows shut tight for a long time until the Holy Spirit came. God's will is not always to release us and relieve us from God's will if it revolves or involves some sort of suffering or pain. Aren't you glad God didn't tell Jesus, say, you don't have to do that? Come on. Where would you be today? Where would I be today? Where would we be today? Hopeless. We certainly wouldn't be in this place worshiping the Lord today. And so we must pray, Lord, your will be done. Didn't the apostle Paul pray three times for the thorn to be removed from his side? And what did the Lord do instead? Provided him sufficient grace in order to endure the pain and the suffering that came with the thorns. So here I think it's important that we understand that we need to seek the Lord's will when we pray and we need to speak the Lord's prayer when we pray and we must submit to the Lord's prayer when we pray. To seek his will, Lord, show me your will. I'm coming with a blank slate, an open heart and an open mind to receive what you have for me, so I am seeking your will when I pray. I don't know your will because I know, I know myself. I am carnal. I am sinful. I want an easy life. I want the best things for myself. How about you? And so I come to the Lord and say, Lord, Show me your will. Then it's important, I think, that we pray. We speak his will when we pray. Lord, you have revealed to me that this is your will, and so I'm praying this is your will. This is what I'm praying for because I believe this is your will. And we agree with God that this is his will, and we pray according to his will. And as we pray, we walk away from that encounter submitting to the will of God Whatever the outcome, wherever it leads, whatever he asks, and whatever he wants. And not walk away disappointed. Like spoiled children who didn't get what we wanted. Jesus embraced God's will, and so should we. Thirdly and lastly, we advance God's kingdom by engaging God's redemptive will. By engaging God's redemption. Notice what it says. On earth as it is in heaven. On is a preposition of location. The word earth is the planet that you and I are occupying right now. It's where we live. It's the third planet from the sun. As it is means likewise. This word likewise, a little bit of research on the word, it is an emphatic adverb. Why is that important? Because it helps us understand that what God is going to do is going to be done. No one can thwart the purposes of God. No one can stop what God is going to do. What God is going to do will be done. Why? Because he is God. And there's no higher power, no higher authority that can stop God from doing what God is going to and wants to, desires to, and brings him pleasure to do when he does the things that he does. We cannot thwart the purposes of God. That is biblical. Turn to Matthew 9, 35. 
Last, last verse I want us to look at. Notice that it is his will and his kingdom as it is on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. While you're turning there, let me ask you, do you think anybody in heaven, when God gives an order up in heaven, and then he goes, really, God? Really? Really? You need, do you need to think that through? Do you, do you need a minute? Do you, do you think anybody in heaven says, no, God, ain't doing that today? Or, or in heaven they go, let me, let me think about that. Or maybe, let's take it to a committee. <laughs> Sorry, guys. They got one more Sunday up front. I'm trying to get them to repent before the new pastor gets here. <laughs> but knowing these people, it's a hard thing. Oh, I'm just kidding you, okay? Do you think in heaven anybody quibbles with God or argues with God or tells God no or asks him to wait a minute or said, are you got to be? No, they don't. He is God, and they do what he says. There was one who tried to do that, and he ain't there no more. Bad theology, I mean, bad grammar, good theology. Ain't, but, but ain't's a good word now, it didn't. He ain't there no more, nor the angels that followed him. And so that's how we should respond. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, and Jesus went throughout the cities and villages, teaching their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, notice he had compassion for them. He had compassion for them. Our Heavenly Father and our Savior and the Holy Spirit are compassionate because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. No one to lead them, no one to guide them. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. What does he say? Pray the Lord of the harvest because we need people out in that harvest. It is white in the harvest and it's ready for collection. He is telling us that in order to bring about this, this incredible kingdom and to fulfill his will, we need to pray that God would send laborers into a field that's ripe under the harvest so that the harvest can be received. Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he, Christ is able to save the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he, Christ, always lives to do what? To make intercession for them. Christ is making intercession right now for you and for me. He is praying for us. But I think he's also praying for the harvest. Romans 10.1, the apostle Paul reveals his heart and his prayer life where he says, brothers, my heart's desire, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, those who have yet to believe, is that they may be saved. Paul is praying for the salvation of unbelievers. 
How do we bring about the kingdom of God and how do we advance that kingdom and how do we advance the will of God? We do it by praying for the harvest that is ripe and ready to be reaped so that laborers will go out into the field and collect what belongs to God so that his kingdom can expand. I know next Sunday you're going to recognize some people that are going on a mission trip. But if you've ever been on a mission trip this morning, will you stand? In this church, if you've ever been on a mission trip, will you stand? I want you to look around, church. This is our church answering the call for the laborers to go out. This is your history. This is who you are. This is your identity. Amen? And God has called us. Thank you, please be seated. God has called us. He says, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do we advance the kingdom of God on this earth as it is in heaven? By more and more boys and girls, men and women, who will place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and crown him the king of their lives and make him their sovereign ruler and follow him. That's our great commission, isn't it? I want to close with this interesting story about some boys that uh, were playing games in the backyard and they were kind of getting bored. And so one little fellow said, you know what, I know a game we can play. And so he said, what game can we play? He said, let's play Jesus play Jesus, one said. Yeah, let's play the game Jesus. Well, how do we play the game Jesus? He said, well, one of us can be Jesus, and the rest of us will be those mean, cruel people that chase Jesus around the backyard. We get to kick him and hit him and spit on him and call him names and treat him really bad. Well, that sounded like a lot of fun to a bunch of boys. The only problem is, you can imagine, there was no one that wanted to be Jesus. But little Joey was the littlest guy, and he was always selected last when they divided up in teams of baseball or football, whatever, and he seized his moment, decided he would be the champion, the center of attention. He stepped in and said, I'll be Jesus. They gave him to a count of 20 in that backyard, and the cruelty began. During those moments, there was long moments for little Joey until finally he got cornered in the back corner of the fence, and all of them were about to pounce on him at the same time when he said, stop, stop. Let's stop playing Jesus and let's start playing church. What we do here is not a game. It's not a game. Eternity hangs in the balance of the lives of those who have yet to be a part of the kingdom of God. And it is our responsibility as Christ's church to pray this prayer so that his kingdom will come, his will will be done in heaven as it is on earth. That is our prayer. That is our commission. That is our responsibility as kingdom kids who are inviting other kids to be a part of the kingdom so that we can help fulfill this prayer as God works in us and through us, accomplishing in us and through us what we cannot do in and of ourselves and on our own. How are you praying these days? Let's pray. Lord, I 
know our time was short for some and long for others. And Lord, I thank you for the word that you've given us today. It's an important word for those of us who are kingdom kids. Lord, I pray that those of us who are kingdom kids would enthrone you in our hearts and our minds and our lives and our business and our families. Lord, that our prayer would be, Lord, does this advance your kingdom? Does what I'm about to do promote your kingdom? Does what I'm about to engage in help advance your kingdom? Or is it mine? Or someone else's? Lord, advance your kingdom through us and in us. Help us to make you Lord not only of our lives, our families, our business, our recreation, and all that we do. May it glorify you. Lord, may we as a church advance your kingdom in this city, in this state, and around the world by being the laborers that will respond to the call that will go and proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. They need to repent and place their faith and trust in you as Savior and Lord of their lives. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, would you reflect for just a moment in this short time of invitation and conclusion about what God may be speaking into your heart today? Maybe today you need to pray the prayer of faith to trust Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord. As these two young ladies did, Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. We are to put our faith in him as a child does. Even children's faith is a sufficient faith by which we can be saved. And we come to him in our intellect or in our own reasoning and whatever. We come to him in the wrong way. It's simple. It's easy. It only takes childlike faith to come to faith in Christ. Do you need to do that today? Become a kingdom kid? In a moment, we're going to sing an invitation. We're going to invite you to come and speak to one of the pastors. Or maybe at the back, there'll be someone in the welcome area. They'd be glad to talk to you, Anthony, or some of the other pastors will be back there. There's a place that you can fill out a card in the pew where you sit. Put it in the offering plate or the... the um, boxes in the back, or maybe if you're online watching us today, send us an email. We'd be glad to connect with you on a personal level and talk to you about your relationship with the Lord. Maybe another time you've never played, another place you've placed your faith and trust in Christ. You're a kingdom kid. You've been born again. You've been placed in the family, but you've never followed Christ in baptism in obedience to that command to be baptized. Baptism in and of itself is not saved, but it's a demonstration of your salvation, and it's a testimony of what Christ has done in through you. Maybe you need to come and make that a reality today in your life. Maybe you need to become a part of this church, serve him here as a kingdom kid and advancing the kingdom and doing the will that the Father has given us to do in this great commission, mission that he sent us to do. Or maybe today you're a baptized, born-again believer, member of this church, but he's not Lord of all. The areas of your life that you have singled out, things that you've been wrestling with, struggling with, sins that you're holding on to, habits that you know that are there, thoughts that are unpleasing, and actions that are discrediting the life of Christ in your life, and you need to come clean and say, Lord, I want to lay that at your altar today. I want to repent, 
call it by name, ask for your forgiveness, and surrender that part of my life to you. Whatever God has placed upon your heart today, will you make that in the form of decision where you sit or in the front where the pastor will be here ready to pray with you and receive you as we close. Lord, thank you for this time together. May it honor and glorify you through the response that we give. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.